right, Matthew 24, and uh, we're going to pick up here in verse 32. Matthew 24, 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree, when his branch is yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, ye know that the summer is nigh. Now, we got down through this passage last time, uh, kind of took a minute to uh, stop. I, again, I made remade all of the three weeks we missed, so they're online and they're short. It's funny. One's 40 minutes, one's 40 minutes, and one's 36 minutes. And the thing is, is when the room's empty, you can't, uh, and I'm in the same shirt, <laughs> so I did them today. You know, I should have. I didn't even think about it. I should have put my coat on. But when you're in the room and you're, make, you're making this and there's really nobody to bounce off the, what'd you just say, look, or hey, slow down, look, you know. So... Uh, we're down here to verse 32 now. We're going to be talking about the parable of the fig tree. And uh, again, that's uh, the illustration here for that little flock where they say, then you know summer is... When you see the fig tree and his, when his branches is yet tender, putteth forth leaves. This is called the budding of the fig tree. When you see that, then warm weather is near. Summer's coming. Verse 33, so likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And again, we talked a little bit last time about this generation. And when you see all these things, and that's going to go back up to verse 27 and, and all of those events that uh, alert the believing remnant to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and that Christ is now ready to come back. And uh, we've talked about that. Come over with me to Luke 21. See the, compare, uh, the, uh, the issue here where you begin to compare uh, some of this. Luke 21 and verse... 25 Luke 21 25 and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distresses of nations with perplexity the sea and the waves roaring men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things be begin to come to pass, underline these three words, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. If you come over to Acts chapter 1, Acts 1, when Christ is ascending into heaven, he said, Acts 1, verse 11, uh, verse 10, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? You guys don't have time to be standing around here looking up in the sky. You got work to do. Now let's go get on to the work. Because he says, this same Jesus, which is also taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. The reason that they weren't to 
be standing around and looking up into heaven was because Christ had told them, when you see these signs taking place, the sun, the moon, the stars, all this stuff, then look up. Right Until that point, you got work to do, and you got to get on the ball, and you got to have to stay the course, and back here in Matthew 24, that's where we're going to be. The rest of this chapter, he's going to talk about that faithful and wise servant. They got work to do in his absence. He's teaching them. He's training them about the 70th week of Daniel. He's moving them out there forward. Uh, by the way, go back to Matthew 24, okay? And he, we, we talked about the sign of the Son of Man, you know, that first issue of him sitting there in the midst of the week, and then that second coming where he's where they literally look up and they see him coming out of the great city, coming down, ready to pour out his wrath and so forth. They have, then you look up. Until, you, until then, you keep your nose to the grindstone, you, you're paying attention to what's going on, you're moving, you're doing, you're working. But when that signs heart, these, these are very specific identifiable signs that will proceed and will identify the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for you and I, we don't have that for the rapture, okay? It's just going to, ba-boom, be here, all right? Just as the church, the body of Christ, started with Paul on the road to Damascus, that was sudden, it was a ba-boom, it was there. So is the end, it's a ba-boom, it's there. Here, they have specific identifiable signs and the tribulation saints are going to be able to look for and when they see these things, guess what they're going to do? They're going to know that the summer is nigh. <laughs> they're going to know it's time to look up. So in verse, 20, in verse 32 here, now learn a parable of the fig tree when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves. Ye know that the summer is nigh. Verse 34, verily I say unto this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And, and we talked briefly last time about the issue of the fig tree and the, and the budding of it. And usually what happens in this is there's a great misunderstanding and a mis. Because most of, the guy, most of the men out there, the teachers, fail to recognize Paul and the distinctive message and ministry given to Paul, then when they come into this passage, they use this passage to date the second coming. They use this passage then erroneously. Because what they do is they say that the fig tree is the national life of the nation of Israel. They get that from Bullinger and from Larkin and Schofield and those guys. And we're going to see here in a minute, this fig tree is not about the national life of Israel. It's about the religious life. But because they say that it's the national life, then they look around and they say, where do we see Israel budding as a nation? 1948, they're made a nation. So then you take 1948, and you take the perfect generation, which is 33, the, the lifespan of, of the Lord, but usually they take 40, okay? Well, then you got to take seven years off the 40 years to get to, because of the tribulation. So what are we at? 33. 
So 48 plus 33 gives us 1981. Then you throw in the 7. Now you're at 88. 1988, they should have come. Well, guess what? He didn't. So then they shifted over into, into Y2K, 2000, here he comes. And now they're, they were talking there in 2000 and here recently about the Mayan calendar. Wasn't that 2020 or something? I can't remember what, what the day was. Anyway, the year. And now they're talking about, well, they just found more of the Mayan calendar and it really doesn't end in 2020. It goes on. You know, it's just nutty. But all they have to do is leave things where they fit and see. And really all of that comes about because of a failure to recognize what and who the fig tree is talking about and, 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 and is a picture of. And uh, the fig tree is, and how they apply it to the nation of Israel. And if you come over with me to the book of Judges, back to Judges, in Scripture, there are trees all through Scripture. But there are four trees specifically that are associated with the nation of Israel. And when they are, because of that, then we have to pay attention to them. The, the, these four th trees are there in the Garden of Eden. These four trees show up all through Israel's life and Israel's, uh, Israel's um, understanding. And when you think about them here in Judges 9, you see them show up in a parable. 9-7, Judges 9, verse 7. And when they told it to Jotham, he went and stood in the top of Mount Gerizim, and lifted up his voice and cried and said unto them, Hearken unto me, ye men of Shechem, that God may hearken unto you. So Jotham is going to tell him a parable here. The trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them. And they said unto the olive tree, Reign thou over us. Now the trees... If they're going to anoint a king, then who are the trees? Nations. Okay, that's who they are. All right? Just like in your Bible, mountains are usually kingdoms and nations. So you've got to let the context kind of tell you what they are. And verse 9, But the olive tree said unto them, Should I leave my fatness, wherewith by me they honor God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, Come thou, and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit, and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said the trees unto the vine, Come thou and reign over us. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said all the trees unto the bramble, Come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the, the trees, if in truth ye anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, as you look there, there are three trees. There's the olive tree. There's the fig tree. There's the vine. And there's the bramble. It's interesting that when they are asked to rule... 
the fig, the vine, and the olives say, well, should I do this? The bramble says, yep, if you make me king, then you're going to fall down and worship me, and you're good to go, man. I'll run you. But what has happened here, again, the nations of the earth, they come to Israel, and what did they say? Reign over us. We see the privileges that you have. We see the blessings that you have. We see what you, you could offer to us, and we want that. And he, Jotham here points them to, to it under the representation here of these four trees. And he says, what should, what should the olive tree have said? Yes, I will reign over you. What should the, the, vig, the fig, the vig, yeah, the vig, we're talking, <laughs> you know, better pay the vig or you're out. You know, we'll, we'll talk to you about your kneecaps, you know. What should the fig and the vine said? Yes, we will reign over you. Yes, we will. But they didn't say that. They came in and they said, no, we won't have it. It's my fatness. It's my sweetness. It's my wine. And we're going to enjoy ourselves, and we're not going to worry about you getting the blessing. See, that was their response. But what did the brambles say? Oh, yeah, man, you want it? I'll give it to you. So when you, by the way, the bramble is the apostate, it's the nation of Israel. All these represent Israel. The bramble represents Israel under the rule of the Antichrist. Okay? And under the, the Antichrist who comes in and takes over. Now, we spend one night in that Understanding Israel series looking at all these trees, and I'm not going to do that, but you have to see what Matthew 24 is talking about. All right? The olive tree represents the nation of Israel. Think about the olive in Scripture. The olive oil. What does that represent in typology? The Holy Spirit. Okay, you go read Romans chapter 11, and it talks about being grafted into the fatness of the olive tree. You go over and you look in 1 Kings 6, when they're building the, temp the, the temple, and you walk through do the doors, the front doors, and they're made of olive wood. So the olive is the spiritual access that Israel has and the spiritual relationship that Israel has with God. That's how you get to God. So it's the spiritual blessings, if you will, and all of that that comes in there. Then you come to the, the, the next one is the fig tree. This is the one where everybody, the fig and the vine are where everybody goofs up, okay? Because when you come over, come over to Psalms chapter 80. Hold on to ju the, the judge. Psalms 80. Well, you can let judges go if you want. Doesn't matter. Psalms 80. What usually is said is that the fig tree represents the national life 
of Israel. And the vine tree represents the religious life of Israel. That's what is taught. Again, Larkin, Bullinger, Schofield, all the guys. The problem is, is when you come to Scripture, those two things are reversed. Psalms 80. Psalms 80. So the fig tree represents the religious life, and the vine represents the national life of Israel. Okay? That's what is in Scripture. Psalms 80, verse 8. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou prepared room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the bow and the, bow, the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. God takes, you're in Psalms, come over to Isaiah 5. God take, brought that nation of Israel, Isaiah 5, out of Egypt and planted them in Palestine. Okay? Isaiah 5, verse number 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for, righteous, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. He takes them. The vine is the national life. I go over there, we're going to plant a vineyard in there, and it's going to be that issue of the vine tree. So then the fig tree. Think about the fig tree. By the way, the vine. What grows on a vine? A grape does. Okay? So what you have in the vine tree is the nation of Israel and the national blessings of it. Now, think about the fig tree. Where is the first time that we see a fig issue show up? Genesis chapter number 3, when Adam and Eve sewed together what? Fig leaves. Operation Fig Leaf. And what happens is, is Adam and Eve do that to hide themselves. They take fig leaves, they make an apron, they make themselves some clothes out of fig leaves. I don't know why you would do that. It's the itchiest leaf there is. Okay, they might be big, okay, maybe. But, but they weren't itchy back there yet? Okay. But th what, what it represents, though, is man trying to cover himself up before God. That's religion. And in Scripture, the fig tree represents the self-righteousness, the works, the religion. So when you see... The religious life of Israel, you see it under the fig tree. The olive tree represents the spiritual blessings that God gave Israel. They come through what eventually will be the new covenant and the working of the Holy Spirit there. Then the vine tree represents the nation that God brings out of Egypt. The bramble is that apostate nation fallen underneath um, satanic uh, attack and then you have the fig tree which represents the religious life of the nation 
If you think about the Garden of Eden, there's a, there's, pa there's a passage in Ezekiel 31 that talks about the trees and everything. And the cedars of Lebanon and all this. You have, in the Garden of Eden, you had a, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You had the tree of life. You had a fig tree. And you had a uh, vine. And then after the fall, you have the bramble show up. So you've got them all there. You have all four of them there in Genesis 2 in there. Now, when, which one of the trees, the vine or the olive, is the forbidden fruit? Do you remember? Well, it isn't the olive. It's the, the vine. Number six, the Nazarite takes a vow, and he can't drink of the vine. Okay? He can't drink of that. Uh, of that forbidden fruit. So guess what Eve ate? She didn't eat an apple. She ate a grape. That's why over in Deuteronomy 32, Moses talks... Look, look, look over there. Just do that real quick. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, but get number 6, just so you can see this. Um, a lot of times people, oh, they, she bit the apple. And I'm like, which kind of apple? Well, it was a golden delicious, don't you know? You know, it's like, how do you know? <laughs> you know, I kind of like Gala. Somebody else might, might like a Macintosh or the Honeycrisp or any of No, she ate of the fruit. Uh, number six, you have verse two there. The, the man or the woman uh, separate themselves to a vow, a vow of the Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord. He shall separate him from wine and strong drink. Now, the and is critical there because wine is not always a strong, you know, the fermentation process. You have new wine and so forth and the strong drink. And shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. See how the grape you can't have. All right. Verse 4. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree. See, the vine. The vine is a picture of what now? The national life. See, he's cutting, he's separating himself away from that apostate nation. That's what he's doing. He's getting out of that nation. Now come to Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, you have the song of Moses as he gives the, the foretelling of Israel's future. Verse 14. Uh, verse 12. So the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. He made him ride on high places of the earth that he might eat the incense of the fields, and he made him to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the flintly rock. Talking about Jacob. There, back up in verse 9. That's who we're talking about. The butter of kine and the milk of sheep, verse 14, with fat of lambs and rams of, of the bread of Bashan and goats and with fat of kidneys of wheat. And thou didst drink the pure blood of the grape. And that's the issue. That's what Eve had in the garden. That's what she took of. They're not supposed to partake of the vine. Just, that's a forbidden issue, is that issue of that pure blood of the grape. So when they did that, that's when they fell. Now, come back to Matthew 24. 
that's a study all unto its own. But just catch that as we're talking about the fig tree. We're not talking about the vine. We're talking about the fig tree, the, nat, the, the religious life of, uh, of Israel. Okay? By the way, there's a book by Arthur Kustens, and he gets into all of this stuff, and it's rather interesting. It gets a little over my head to try to see, understand it, but it's interesting, and uh, he's dead now. It's an old book. Um, I read it back in the 80s, early 80s and uh, borrowed it out of dad's library. I put it back, but I borrowed it. And um, he, he makes the point through uh, uh, a scientific evidence that Eve ate of the grape. And uh, scripturally, you'll see that as well. Anyway, we'll go with scripture over, the, over Arthur, okay? <laughs> but that's the case. All right, verse uh, chapter 24 Verse 33, so likewise when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these be fulfilled. Unfortunately, most of, of the folks out there identify the fig tree as the national life. In scripture, it is the religious life, okay? When you think about that as the religious life, then what are they looking for? If the fig tree is going to be bringing forth leaves, what are they looking for in Israel? They're looking for the religious life of Israel to be what? Reestablished, to be budding, to be going, to be flourishing again. And the generation that sees that happen is a generation that then is see Christ return. Okay? Now, Israel's religious life today isn't budding, isn't flourishing, isn't growing, isn't doing. It's why? Well, one, we're in the dispensation of grace and God's interrupted all of that. All right? When, when then do they see the religious life of Israel budding and growing and going. They see it in the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, I'm going to get over here. Remember a few, here's the 70th week, there's the second coming. In Daniel 9, in the beginning of the week, the, adversary, the Antichrist rebuilds the temple. He does it in 220 days. Okay? The temple is rebuilt. In the midst of the week, he stops it all. So when the temple's rebuilt, what then do you see happening? Their religious life is what? Reestablished. It's flourishing. Everybody's going back to the temple. Every, all, the, all the things that the believing remnant is going to be warned about not going and being part of in Hebrews, but what do they see? The generation, notice verse 34, this generation, the generation that sees that temple worship reestablished, the religious life in Israel flourishing again. By the way, they're under 
a peace policy back here underneath the Antichrist politically. When that, little, when that generation sees that, when they see the reinstitution of the sacrifices of, of the Levitical system, when they see the temple being rebuilt, when they see all of that happening, back up Matthew 24, verse 15, when, when they see the temple is operating, it's going to be operating through, through the, the middle of the week there until the abomination of desolation takes place. That's when 2 Thessalonians 2 he stands there as God, sitting on the throne, saying he is God and all that. So when all that happens, that generation that sees that, guess what's going to happen to them? They're going to see the coming. I hope you follow that. So the fig tree has to be the religious life. It can't be the national because when, the, when they see this, then what do they know is coming? They know summer's nigh. They know that Christ is about ready to return. When that Antichrist is up there, basically what the Lord's telling them is, when you see all this, guys, don't give up. You got 220 days, you got three and a half years under your belt. Guess what's coming? The days have been shortened for the, for the elect's sake. It's only another three and a half years. And, you know, we think about seven years being a long time, but it's really not a long time, you know. And he's just telling them, don't melt, don't get it, stick in there, be faithful, carry on. And when you get there... When you see these signs, then what do you know? You know the end's coming. You know it's nearer than it was the day before. Verse 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Great verse about scripture, but in the context, it's a great verse of comfort. And it's a great verse that, that illustrates that they're going to have to be willing to trust his word on this issue. Okay? They're going to have to look. They're going to see the sun doing its thing, the moon doing its thing, all this stuff going on. They're going to see the nation, that temple rebuilt, 220 days. They're going to see all this stuff happening. And you know what they're going to have to do? What does the book say? That's why verse 15 there, whosoever readeth, let him understand. They're going to have to go back into their Bibles, into their Word of God. They're going to go back. And the, Israel, the little flock, they'll understand this stuff way better than you and I because it's talking to them. But they're going to have to go into there, and they're going to have to take a deep breath and say, okay, let's go. All right? When you talk here about the fig tree, one, one thing real quick. Uh, look over at chapter 21. Chapter 21. In chapter 21, Christ curses the fig tree. Okay? So if the fig tree is the national life, then what did he just do? He cursed his people. Yeah, thumbs down. He doesn't. It's their religion that he curses. He says, hey, in my house we're going to do this, talking about the temple. And then he looks over and says, your house is desolate, and I'm leaving. Talking about religious life. Uh, Matthew 21, 17. 
And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany. And he lodged there. Now in the morning as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only. And he said, let no fruit grow on this henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. Again, he's not... <laughs> he, he, it's a symbolic, it's a type picture of the representation of what's happening in the nation of Israel spiritually. And what does he do? He curses it. So if the fig tree represents the national life of Israel and Christ cursed the fig tree and said, let no fruit go on, grow on it, then could that nation be replanted ever and restored? No. Okay? If the curse is forever, and it is, then they could never be restored. However, in the religious life, can that nation's religious life be restored? The answer is yes. It's called the New Covenant. Okay? It's called moving from the Mosaic Law to the Messianic Law. Now go back to, to Matthew 24. So when you go down, you know, when you think about the fig tree and the religious life of Israel, God, Christ curses it. Really, what's he cursing? What's the one thing, what does the law bring forth? Life or death? Death. And, that, and the Mosaic law was the religious life of Israel. So basically what he's saying is what Hebrews teaches them. I'm not using the old covenant. Don't go back to that old covenant. It's withering away. It's going off the scene. Let's now move on to the new covenant and let's administer that because it's coming on the scene in his second coming going on into the temple. Okay, I hope you grasp that. That's important here in this text because now in the rest of the section, the rest of the chapter here, He's going to deal with them, with that little flock watching and with the endurance, uh, with the issue of enduring and being faithful to the end. Holding on, being ready, and understanding what's going on around them. Verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father. Now, notice that verse, because they say, well, it, it doesn't say, the day and the hour knoweth no man. See, it doesn't say the month or the year, you can't know it. But wait a minute, if you've got an hour and a day, the day belongs in what? A week, and a week belongs in a month, and a month belongs in an year. So you would know it. Just a tomfoolery, you know, about the argument. But notice something very carefully here. No, no man knoweth, nor the angels of heaven, but my Father. Now, come over to Mark chapter 13. Because when you come to Mark 13 in the parallel passage here, you have something that pops up that you have to be very careful with because people will use this to say you have an error in your Bible. And because... And the King James Bible is wrong because it's missing something here. Mark 13, 32. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. You see how Mark adds 
neither the Son. Now, if you've got a new Bible, what the new Bibles do is in Matthew 24, 36, come over to John 15, they add in neither the Son. Because they say, well, if it's in Mark, it should have been in Matthew. That's this is the new Bibles, okay? But a little Bible study will help you understand John 15 of why it's in Mark and not in Matthew. John 15, 15. John 15, 15. There is a reason that, it, that, that nor the Son is in Mark and not in Matthew. John 15, 15. Henceforth I call you not servants. Watch now. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. Isn't that interesting? A servant doesn't know what the Lord is going to do. The Lord, the master, doesn't take the servant into his confidence and lay out the game plan. And say, hey, what do you think? What does the Lord do? He tells the servant what to do, doesn't he? All right? And it's an interesting thing that in the account of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have those four pictures, if you will, of the Lord. Matthew depicts the Lord as the king. What does Mark picture the Lord as? The servant. And John 15, 15 says, the servant doesn't know what the Lord's doing. So then when you come back to Matthew and you look at Mark, it's not a mistake. Because does the king know what's going on? Yes. Matthew doesn't use nor the son because he's depicting the Lord as the king. Those four portraits are critical to remember when you're going through the dark. By the way, if the, Lord, if, God, if the Holy Spirit only wanted one portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ, there would only been one gospel. He says, no, we're going to have four Gospels as, they, as they're going to match up to the four faces of the cherubs, as they're going to match up to those four behold statements, those four branch statements, the four carpenter statements. Uh, the, this stuff is all through here. So he depicts, Matthew is depicting the Lord as the king. The king knows what's going on. Mark is depicting him as a servant. Wait till we get into Mark. <laughs> you know, every verse is an and. This guy never stops working, okay? But you know what? Nobody cares. The servant, nobody, he doesn't know anything about what's going on. He's just reacting to what he is told to do. Do you catch that? So if anyone ever uses Matthew 24, 36 and says, see, look, there's a mistake, you can just say, you don't know what you're talking about because this is what is, is there, okay? And, and I'll be honest with you, you need to give your Bible the benefit of the doubt that maybe it's right and you're just not quite there yet. And uh, anytime you ever have a question or something, stick it in the back of your mind, keep reading and studying, and guess what will happen? You'll get an answer, and it'll pop up, and it'll, it has for me over the years. I used to carry a piece of paper in my Bible, my other Bible, and I would write things down as I was, oh, okay, let's write that down. And then I'd be reading and go, oh, well, that answered that, and there, you know, that helps, you know. And Mark 13 answers this thing here in Matthew 24. Okay? All right. Matthew 24, 37. But as the days of Noah, that's Noah, 
were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, there's a lot of information here, but rather it's pretty straightforward. The days of Noah, the days of Noe, okay? But as, again, remember, as and so. There's going to be a comparison here. You go back to Genesis 6, 4 through 6, and those are the days of Noah and so forth. The the, the things there prior to the, the judgment, Um, Come over, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And so forth, and and you begin to look at it, and what we really quickly understand and begin to see is that the flood is a picture of the tribulation. It's a picture of the 70th week of Daniel. And again, what you say, what you begin to really see is back there when he says, as it was in the days of battle, so it's going to be over here. And you begin to see that the things of the Old Testament are really just a dress rehearsal, a teaching environment for Israel to learn about the real deal, what's really going to happen. So he uses that here with the issue of the days of Noah. You got 1 Peter 3. Start in verse number 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when uh, once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now notice, think about what's going on. Noah builds the ark. They're going to go into the ark. God shuts the door. The rain comes down and the floods come up, as the song goes. By the way, where did the ark go? When the rains came and the waters began to flood, where did the ark go? It just floated. It had no rudder. It had no outboard motor or inboard motor. It's just a big box, a couple football field long box, and it was designed was to do nothing but float. That's all it was designed to do. Noah was saved from the flood. By the way, notice... In verse 20 there, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, how long did it take Noah to build the ark? 120 years. Took him some time. Okay, Genesis 6, verse 3. See, the long-suffering of God has always been pictured. And in Noah, you see the big picture of long-suffering. What is this age? One of the characteristics of this age is the long-suffering of God. By the way, it's interesting, 120. Acts chapter 2 in the upper room is 120. Acts 1. It's interesting how that number just floats there as a picture of that little flock, that believing remnant. 
because Noah was, uh, Enoch was there in Noah's day, but Enoch was taken. He was raptured out. Noah and his family have to get on the boat. But notice real carefully here, Noah was saved from the flood. So he had a water physically saved Noah. They're in the ark. They're held out of the wrath. The wrath of God fell, but the ark did what? Kept them from being destroyed. Verse 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now watch the parenthesis carefully. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Noah and the ark are a like figure. They're a type. They're a picture of that little flock going through the tribulation. What's what's there Noah and them are in the ark and they're be and water is what's going on right around water baptism. How's a little flock get into how does a member of Israel get into the little flock? Baptism, water baptism, John's baptism. John says John 10, here's the door. Let's go. Let's get in. Here's what's happening. Let's move forward. Let's, let's get on with this. So when you talk about here about Noah, as in the days of Noah, back in Matthew 24, what you see is this picture of tribulation and what's going to take care of that believing remnant is that they're in that little flock. How'd they get in? Water baptism. Now come back with me to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. In Noah's day, when the water fell, and they go in, who got wet? The people in the ark or the people outside of the ark? Well, the people outside, the lost. Noah and his family, Isaiah 54, and his family were high and dry, weren't they? Um, They were high on the water and dry in the ark, but that same water judged the earth. The same water that judged the earth lifted up Noah and saved Noah and his family. And it's a like figure. That's what I'm trying to point to you here. One day God's going to pour out his wrath upon the earth in the tribulation. And he says, if you want to see, if you want to be saved from the wrath that's coming, then you come and be a part of that little flock, the spiritual ark, if you will, of believers that's going to be preserved through that day of tribulation. Again, how do you get in it? Water baptism. All right? So in a sense, water baptism is going to save them, not from the filth of their flesh, but it's going to save them from what? From that tribulation, from that wrath. Okay? And that's how they get into it. So... The point in all of this in Matthew 24 is that Noah's, the, the days of Noah, as in the days of Noah, that is a picture of the tribulation. And not only are the days of Noah a picture of the trib, but it's also a picture of the corruption that's happening on the earth and what is happening and what's going on and all of that stuff. So you think it's bad now. It's going to be worse when this stuff hits the fan. Isaiah 54, 
Notice this carefully. It, it, this is a fantastic passage here. Verse 7, 54-7. God is going to be speaking to Israel, and he's looking prophetically to the days out there to come. Verse 7, for a small moment have I forsaken thee. I, I love that, a small moment. Just seven years. <laughs> Just seven years. A small a light affliction is but for a moment. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. Didn't we read about the angels going out and gathering them from the four winds? In a little wrath. Not a lot of wrath, but a what? A little wrath. I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Man, look at that. A little wrath. I shortened the days for the very elect's sake. I shortened it. I took care of you. I got mercy. You've got mercy if you're in the little flock. Verse 9. For, for this, that tribulation and the wrath, is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. Israel looks out there at that tribulation wrath that's being poured out on them, and they say, you know what, it's like back there with Noah. We're under the water, we're covered up nationally. This is a national thing. Verse 10, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. Israel will be covered nationally, as it were, with the waters of God's wrath, but just like that promise made back there with Noah that he wasn't going to destroy the earth with water again, the same's going to be true now in the future out here when God comes back. He doesn't destroy the earth. He makes a new earth, but in his wrath, that little Noah and his family, picture, it's a like figure of the ark and what's going on. Now come back to Matthew 24. So when he says this issue here in Matthew 24, as in the days that were before the flood, but as in the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You go look back there, you can see it. You've got Noah out preaching. You got Enoch out preaching. You got all this going on. Noah's build. Could you imagine Noah building the ark and the ridicule and the, and the poking at it? The guy over back there in Kentucky or Tennessee that built the life-size you know, he was getting, you know, made fun of and all this stuff. Nothing compared to, to, to Noah. <laughs> but see, the thing is, is that's a picture. It's a light figure. Verse 39, And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. When the flood comes and took them all away, how did it take them away? In judgment. It drowned them. They were dead. They were gone. They're no longer there. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two, then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Now, this is why I did that stuff with Noah. 
where, where is the one going to be taken? Well, it's got to be in judgment. They're taken in judgment because that's what the passage is talking about. In the passage we're, talk, we're talking about here, all of a sudden the Lord, we, they don't go meet the Lord in the air like us. One's in the field, one's there, one's gone. That other one, it's verse 40, then, two, then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Again, clearly, because of the context, we're talking about judgment, not the rapture. Uh, com the, the comparative passage is Luke 17. Look over there real quick here. Luke 17. You know, people use this passage to say, oh, this is what the rapture is going to look like. You're going to be standing there next to you. Somebody, boom, you're going to be gone. Well, true, you are, but... That's not the Matthew 24 has nothing to do with the rapture. They're going to be yanked away and taken out of judgment. Look at Luke 17, verse 35. Luke 17 would be good. Two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? Isn't that a good question? And he said unto them, Whosoever the body is, I'm sorry, wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Now, do you know an event where the eagles are going to get gathered together in Israel's time? Revelation 19, you start in verse 11 and you run down through verse 21, and you know what happens at the end of the battle out there of his coming back? The eagles are gathered to the great feast to clean up all the carcasses and judgment. And where he comes back and, and, the, and where the fowls are going to be filled with their flesh, it says. <laughs> so what you're reading about here, Matthew 24, Luke 17, is he's saying, listen, these guys are taken in judgment and when Christ comes back, he's going to destroy them in that great battle, that great day over there. But you need to understand, one's going to be there and one's going to be gone, and they're taken off in judgment. So he warns them, verse 42, 2442, watch therefore. He's coming, and you're not going to know when he's coming, so you need to be on your toes, you need to be watching. For ye, not, ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Isn't that interesting? They can't know the hour, the, the day or the hour. So he says what? Watch their, what are they watching for? Those signs to pop up. Now they're not going around gazing up in heaven. They got a job to do. That's what he's going to say there in verse 43. He's going to look here and he's going to begin to talk now to that little flock about their duty. They're, during his absence, their job is to be watching and it's to be ready because he can come back at any time, a thief in the night. And, you know, a thief doesn't say, hey, I'm going to be by at 8. <laughs> oh, well, you missed him because it's after 8, see. The thief comes in when he comes in. That's the issue here. 
verse 43, but know this, that if the good men of the house had known in what, in, in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. That's the idea. Verse 44, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Over there in James, he says, you know, you guys got a problem. You think you can go down, we got all this time, and go down here to the city, buy and sell, be there a day and a year. We got all the time. He goes, you're thinking about this all wrong. You, 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 he could come back like that. He could come back like that. You got to be ready. You got to be watching. You got to be paying attention. Now, what he's going to do here from now to down the rest of the chapter is he's going to go over the duty of, the, of his servants in light of the fact that he's going away. He's going to be absent from their midst, and there, there is some things that uh, there's going to be a delay in his coming back. And in that delay, he's going to talk about the issue of the faithful and wise servant. And when he does that, he begins to now lay out, verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant. And he's going to get, give them now some, some things to pay attention to, some, th- some doctrine to work on in his absence, in the middle when they're having trouble, tribulations, difficulties, problems, heartaches. He says, listen, you think seven, you know, like I said, seven years, is, it's not going to be a long time in the middle of this. You know, when you're having a good time, time flies. When you're having a bad time, it just kind of ticks. But it really didn't tick. It still beat the same. It's perspective. Let's have the right perspective, little flock. So he says, hey, look, guys, I'm going to go away here. And by the way, he's getting ready to, to do that. And he's like, you guys need to be ready while I'm gone. Here's what you need to do while I'm absent. So 24, verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant? Whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find him doing. The Lord makes him a ruler over his house, and when he comes back, that faithful and wise servant is doing just what he was left to do. Okay, verse 47 there. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler all over all of his goods. Now, think about the Lord. I don't have the chart up. We don't have room on the board. You got Calvary. He, he comes back. He spends 50 days with them, gets them all ready. They go into that early Acts period. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. In Acts 7, Stephen sees him standing. What's he doing? He's coming back. All right? When he, if he had not interrupted the program and he came back, what is he finding his little flock doing? Exactly what he told them to do. They're giving out the meat in due season. Meat. Hebrews over there, five, in, in, this, in, in the chapter 5, 
talking about the mature saints who have the meat of the word and by reason exercise their senses and do all that. See, these guys are giving out the doctrine. They're keeping that little flock flowing and growing and going. He comes back, what does he find them doing? That. All right? Verse 48, But, and if that evil servant shall say, and here's the critical part, in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and to drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Boy, when is that? <laughs> okay? So the problem with the wicked servant is that he says what? In his heart. What does he say? My Lord didn't come. And you go over there to 2 Peter 3, and what did the scoffers of the last days say? Where is his coming? You guys have been talking about him coming for, for over 2,000 years. Where is it? It ain't here yet. And Peter says, hey, the Lord does not slack. He's coming. He's just doing something else right now with Paul and the body of Christ. It's called the long-suffering. And you need to go read Paul and find out what he's doing. But what does this evil servant say? It's in his heart. This is the guy's will. This is the, this is the guy's attitude. It's his choice in the matter. The man doesn't want the Lord to come back. Why? We're eating and drinking and marrying and giving and marrying. We're having a blast, man. It's a party. Party like it's what, 1988 or 84 or whatever, 1990, huh? 89, 99, whatever, 84, I don't know. Okay, just party like it was last year, right? Party like it was B.C., before COVID, <laughs> okay, right? You're just going. See, they don't want him to come back. He's living for himself, but the result is what? Judgment and wrath. So Christ looks at that little flock and he tells them, I'm leaving my goods in your hands. You're my stewards. You're my servants. You be faithful. And you take the meat of the word of God out, the doctrine that I give you. And you teach it and you preach it and you give it out. John and Peter, look at that guy outside there in Acts, that impotent man outside the temple, and he says, I don't have money for you, but what do I have? I got the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he, the guy gets up and he heals him. He goes, I'll heal you, but I ain't going to give you money. I'll give you something that is going to give you life everlasting. You take that out, you, 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 they don't decide in their heart that they don't want the Lord to come back. They don't go out there and do it their own way. Guess what? They want the Lord to come back. They cry that, oh, what's taking you so long? <laughs> come on back. Let's get on with this program. So in chapter 24, and now as we begin chapter 25, next time, you begin to see this issue that's going to happen here. And what you're going to see, or what we've just saw in 24, is that faithful servant. 
And that, that faithful servant is the one who keeps on giving out the meat and does exactly what the master left him to do. Now in 25, we're going to have a parable that's going to come in, and that's going to be regarded with the issue of faithful service. And he's going to conti- now he's going to talk about the wise servant. All right? Now, what, you're go- what, what has taken place now in chapter 24 and 25 is that you have pictured for us, demonstrated for us, the impact of Christ's return on three groups of people. Okay? The first group, they're in the first part of Matthew of 24, the first 25 verses, is you see the impact of Christ's return on the Jew, on Israel. Okay? And you know what it is? Great tribulation. Then in the in verses 36 through 25, all right, verse 30, he demonstrates its impact on his servants and his absence. Then you get down into chapter 25. If you come down to verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his uh, glory, and before him shall be gathered all what? Nations. And now there you're going to see the impact of his return on all the nations. So you've got the apostate Israel, great tribulation, the little flock and what they're going to be doing, and then the nations. So that's where we're seeing here because what happens now after 25, chapter 26, we go to Calvary. And the scene about Calvary shows up. And the authorities come and get him. They go to the garden. Then he goes to Calvary. And then in 28, he's gone. He's resurrected and he's up, up, and away, ascended off. Okay? So real quickly here, we're coming to the end of the Lord's life, and he's laying in all of the information that they need not to get through Acts. They need to get through the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? So we'll pick up next time now in chapter 25. I didn't think we'd get down through it all, but we're a little over an hour. So I made up for all the shorties that you had the last three weeks online, okay? But the issue here, again, is, is very clear what the Lord's trying to do and trying to accomplish, okay? All right, there's so much more in this passages that we don't really look at. That's why I was trying to hit, kind of hit everything with a scatter gun and with the shotgun and uh, let you pick the uh, pellets out of the wall as you like, Okay? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to study your word, to read it, to have it in our language, to see it, to see what you're going to do with your people, with that little flock, see what you're going to do with the world about, you, about us, and know that just as you do for them, you, you will be doing for us in the ages to come at the end of our, at the end of the dispensation of grace. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory in that confidence that you will be true to your word. And we'll give you the honor and the glory for that. In your name we pray. Amen.